Well, hello and welcome. My name is Amber Winston, and I would like to welcome you all to the Return of Ritual online show. I have a very uh, special guest here with us today. Um, But the reason I really wanted to put together the Return of Ritual online show um, is I fundamentally believe that through technology, we're actually more connected now than ever. But underneath that level of connection that we feel through, through social media and technology, there's actually a level of disconnection um, and isolation that people are, are starting to experience. And it's really my mission to learn about sacred rituals and ceremonies that have been used across cultures for millennia and really dive into that wisdom and see how we can start to bring back sacred rituals and ceremonies into society where we can, one, feel connected to ourselves feel connected to sisters and brothers, and then really to feel more connected to spirit or source or God or whoever that is to you. So that's really why I have put together this series. And I am extremely honored to have Amelda here with us today. She is a fantastic author and shaman. I'm actually halfway through her book, uh, oh. The Born Shaman, and I'm absolutely loving it. Um, so welcome, Amelda. It's so lovely to have you. Well, thank you for having me and for inviting me to be here today. Wonderful. So we'll just dive right in. Um, The first question that I have for you is, how did you step onto the shamanic path? What led you down this, this journey that you're on? Well... Only when I was on it did I discover I had always been on it because I did a lot of shamanic work as a child. But growing up in a Roman Catholic family in the Netherlands, uh, you know, the right words hadn't been put to that. Like, you know, I wouldn't have known the words for what I was doing. But in hindsight, I was doing psychopomp work at night and other things as well. And then later in life, I painted my way right in. It was like my own paintings became the portals I stepped through. And also my own paintings um, are always about the world of spirit. So they were my way of connecting to that. And also they were the portal for beings from the other world to come through and talk to me. So painting is the short answer. Painting. Amazing. And so were you always an artist as, as a child? You were always painting? And- yes, as a, as a child, I was always like painting in my bedroom and writing stories. And I loved making music as well. So what I was going to do after secondary school was going to be a toss up between those things. And I'm fortunate in that today I can combine all of these interests. So it's lovely the way it's come together. Mm, it's beautiful. And it's beautiful to know that or to have had the realization that this has always been a part of you and a part of your journey, um, but you didn't quite have the right words for what was actually happening. It wasn't like there was a, a moment that happened and then you went down this one path. It seems like it was always there. Well, it was always there. There's still like moments of awakening. I remember being 19 years old and meeting what is now my husband, then my boyfriend and going to Stockholm where he lived because he's Swedish. And it was that moment of walking around Stockholm where the Norse cults came and talked to me. And suddenly there was this spirituality that was so different from the Roman Catholic upbringing. Um, and it was like this moment of complete revelation. So I've always had that connection to the Norse cults. But then, you know, it still wasn't completely clear. 
And then I would do open studios or I'd have art exhibitions. And once someone came and said, you know, are you a shaman? And I barely knew what the word meant. And also today you don't call yourself a shaman. Obviously that's for tribal shamans. But her question sort of, you know, set off some reactions in me. And I said to her, I said, you know, I have three small children. I can't go to the Amazon and train with tribal shamans and she said well no you don't actually need to they're like courses you can do even in the uk they're like people who offer these courses and that didn't mean i was ready to act on that but she planted a seed that later on turned out to be very significant i still managed not to listen and act on that really and then one night the spirits just came um, when i was in bed and trying to sleep and they said, look, we've been dropping hints. We've been trying to get food to you. You're still not acting on this. So we shall be very, very clear now. You need to do shamanic training. And, you know, you need to, you know, you made a commitment before you were born to do shamanic work in the world. You don't seem to remember that. So we're now here to remind you that the time has come to do this. So after that, I found myself a shamanic teacher because, you know, the, the call was so loud. And that's how it all started amazing now have spirits always come to to connect with you and and how have you worked with that medicine like how have you embraced that well i think for me the principle is always to try to do what the spirits ask of me which usually leads me into situations i find quite uh, intimidating some of the time it's not always what i want for myself really but even as a very young child like maybe say a six or seven year old the spirits would come at night and they would say there's like someone who has died and you know they need to cross over and you know we're like you know, approaching him or her, but they can't seem to hear us or they seem really confused about what they are. Will you come and talk to them? Because you're still like a little girl, you're still in a human body, which is like more where the person just comes from, you know, earth. And then maybe if you do it, it's like less sort of, you know, it's like, you know, more familiar, more comfortable. And, you know, as a child, I would go. I think that was what was being asked of me. So I'd go and I'd talk to people and say, look, you know, do you even realize you're dead? And often people would not realize it. And it's like, well, you know, making the situation clear and then also saying there are, you know, helpers over there, you know, angels or other beings, and they will take you to the right place, but you need to be willing to go. And then I would like, you know, hand them over, go some of the way, and then I would continue sleeping. And this was so normal for me. I didn't even tell my parents I was doing it. I think my mother only found out when she read that book you just held up a moment ago. Like my mother wouldn't have known about this until I wrote a book. Because it's normal. Right. And in the book, you actually, there's a term for this, where you are actually passing spirits to the light. Um, What was the name of that term? Psychopomp work, being a soul conductor. Psychopomp. Yes. But I only Which learned that I... word, you know, reading anthropology texts when I was in my late 20s. No one, you know, no, when I was seven years old or even 18 years old, no one had used the word shamanism or the word psychopomp work or even mm-hmm. the word healing work in my presence. Well, you know, I have to just share because that was such a revelation when I, when I read that chapter and, and you attached a word to that work because I... Um, in January of 2017, and I had a tragic house flood at my house that I was living in. And I actually passed probably about 20 to 25 Native American spirits that were on the land um, that had been in between for a very, very long time through the guidance of um, 
of a, a really fabulous healer actually in London um, reached out for some guidance because I didn't really have everything figured out, but he actually helped me usher these spirits to the light. And I felt them actually pass through my body. And that became like a, a radical experience for me where one, I didn't know what was exactly happening. And so when I read this book and I, and I saw the, there's a word for this, um, I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible because that really started my whole exploration into, into studying shamanism and other the spirit realm more closely. I think I've mm. always been very intuitive and as a child, but this was like a very big experience that I was able to, to work through, but then I had to find the support. Um, uh, from the elders in the community who could guide me and say, this is completely mm. normal. This is what's happening. And and so I just find that so interesting that as a young girl, you were doing that, you were connecting to the spirit world and that was normal. Like that just was how it was. It was normal, but also they would give me the instructions because I now realize that I always find it easy to talk to spirits. So, you know, I would just do exactly what they said. That's also why I never felt unsafe. Like it could have been unsafe. I wouldn't recommend that children do this. And I've had to work with parents who have children who are psychopomps and advise them on how you manage that issue. This is a whole different topic again. Um, but, you know, I have to say I was never unsafe because their instructions were always so clear. So it was fine. Mm, that's remarkable. It's so fascinating. Um. I'd like to talk a little bit more about rituals and ceremonies. Um, so the first, the first question that I have is, you know, what is the unique power and gift that people can receive or experience when they come together in ritual or ceremony? Um, well, people are always looking for community. And I think you were saying earlier that we see a fragmentation of community and community is a need that is wired into human beings. Like human beings do not thrive. They do not feel well when they don't have it. And I find that people will travel long distances or go a long way to you know, have that being in community. So community in itself is a healing force. But then also when you do ceremonial work or when you perform rituals together, what happens is that the portals between the worlds open and you're in both worlds at the same time. And you're not doing that alone, you're doing it as a group, meaning that you're both working with the human beings you are with, but you're also working with the spirits on the other side of the veil. And then really you're in sacred space where the normal rules are kind of suspended, meaning you're in the place where healing occurs, where miracles can occur, and also where seeds can be planted that then are going to manifest you know in this the world of material reality so in a way it's the most magical place to work in wow and so what does that what does that give people you know i'm just trying to think about um maybe people who haven't really experienced this before you know what would they what could they expect when they would go to a ceremony or a ritual um, if they haven't been exposed to this before? Well, I have that quite a lot because I teach introduction courses, both in sacred art, but also in Northern tradition work, safer or sometimes called Norse shamanism. 
So I kid people who've never done that before. And then you take them through their first ceremony, like whatever that is, that's different on different occasions. And uh, people are profoundly affected by that because it takes them into a place away from the what we call the egoic self, you know, the everyday concerns in a monkey mind that is going. And also, you know, the egoic mind is usually um, looking after our own interests. So it's what I need next and what I want next and what I am thinking. And then you take people into this much larger place, which some would say is also the place where we go after we die and the place where we were before we were born. So it's like an experience of going home. And as I just said, it's also, also the place where big magic is possible. So what I didn't find is like once people have discovered that, they want more of that in their lives. They want it more often. They want to learn how to do it for themselves. Uh, they ask questions about how can I do this with my own community or with my own friends? Because once you have experienced it, it's something you don't want to live without because it's so powerful. Mm. So how do you, how has ritual or ceremony played kind of a, an integral part in your own healing journey back to sacred wholeness? Like how, do you have any examples that you can share of how that's helped you on your journey? Um, yes, because I think the most powerful guidance I have received or the most powerful things that have happened in my life very often uh, relate to ceremony like ceremony is where I've worked through you know some of the biggest things that have happened in my life it's where I've made the most powerful connections to other people also on the other side of the veil powerful helpers and spirits and beings have come forward that I've entered into a long-term working relationship with and that's also why I offer it to all my students. You know, I teach in the daytime and in the evening of like a longer course. Uh, we do ceremonial work. And then I also like make sure it's always work that serves the people present, but that it also serves a larger good, some issue in society or a certain time of year where there is an observance of work that needs to be done. Like last week I was teaching in Philadelphia and then it was the wild hunt. We're doing Northern tradition work. And this is the time of year where you do the wild hunt, which is a group form of psychopomp work and clearing the space of all the old energies and old thoughts and old energies so that, you know, we can go to the winter solstice and the light can return and a new, you know, new things can come into being. So that was only last week. But, you know, it would be different things, different times of year and different things for different groups of people. Mm. Yeah. What do you have any plans for the winter solstice? Any yes, particular rituals well, planned? That's going to be personal. I will not be with students. I am going to be in Sweden. As I said, my husband is Swedish and we have a house in the forest in Sweden. And um, last time I was there, which was in October, the autumn break, I was performing something called the Alpha Blot, which is um, an offering ceremony dedicated to the male ancestors. That's just the way the tradition works. And then when I'll next be in Sweden, it will actually be the night of the ancestral mothers, the Mudranit or the Mudranet. So the first thing I will do when I get to Sweden before even preparing for Christmas is to actually um, do a ceremony which will last the whole night where all the ancestral mothers are honored both on the land and inside the house with food offerings, prayers, 
drumming, uh, various things. And that is not only the most obvious mothers, as in like my own like grandmothers and uh, women in my family bloodline on my husband's side, but also once you start doing that work, it goes further back. You get to the plant ancestors, the tree ancestors, uh, you know, all the spirits who remain in the land and sort of, uh, you know, like work in cooperation with us human beings. So you also have the mothers, you know, animal mothers and even, you know, animals from, you know, other species altogether. And they're all woven into that work and they all have their great night of honoring. So on my personal agenda, that will be the next big ceremony. Oh, that's amazing. Um, what about your day-to-day rituals and ceremonies? Do you, can you walk us through like what your ideal morning ritual or evening ritual would look like? Of course. I mean, for me, the ideal morning ritual is, it always starts with my dream diary. And the thing is that you need to write a dream diary before people talk to you. So my husband is on the strict instructions to not talk to me until I'm done. You know, he'll sort of look at me sitting there with the pen and he'll come make me a cup of tea. But he also knows if he starts talking, I may not be able to thread back what happened there. So for me, that's always the first thing because, you know, in our dreams, the spirits come and they give us guidance. And for me to get that down, to sketch it and to write it. So that is the first thing. And then when that is done, uh, there will be the morning prayers. So I've certain, I would say, an ancestral prayer. And there is um, a prayer in Old Norse that I say, an invocation. And then I will be chanting the runes, again, from the northern tradition. So I build like rune circles around my altar and also on my land. And I will chant the runes and the runes will kind of chant back at me. So I'm calling in those vibrations. And then in that container created that way, I hold all the people that I um, have received prayer requests or healing requests for. And then also, you know, depending what is going on or what is active, you know, I will sort of mention the names of some of these people and say personalized prayers, you know, and asking various ancestors and beings to watch over them and to help with certain issues. So um, I think all of those things together is pretty much my morning routine before I start work. I love that you do a dream diary. Um, What would you say for people who don't remember their dreams? Well, there are things you can do. Um, The first thing is to uh, set an intention. So just like with other things in life, if you like, so don't just like drop into oblivion, but sit on the edge of your bed and agree with yourself. I'm really going to try and remember my dreams. You could ask ancestors and spirits to help with that and say, you know, my intention is to remember my dreams and to write them down tomorrow morning. Make sure the notepad and the pen are by your bed. If you have to get up and look for them, yeah, then by then you've forgotten the dream. So make it easy for yourself. Um, I've sometimes had people who are such solid sleepers that they can't do it. And then sometimes you need to disrupt yourself a little bit. So like drink quite a lot of water before you go to bed. So you'll wake up in the middle of the night and then just sort of see if you can make some notes before you go back to sleep. Another thing that I find helps is I sometimes think I have forgotten my dreams, but I'll just get out my dream diary anyway. And I more start writing down like random associations, whatever image was, you know, in my eyes when I woke up, whatever. And uh, then sometimes I can thread it back or sometimes you can't remember the dream, but you have, say, a strong feeling, you know, it was an anxious dream or a happy dream or 
whatever it may be. So I will just go in anyway, make it a daily practice and say, I woke up with a sense of anxiety. And then sometimes the kind of automatic writing takes over. And then I find I write quite a lot anyway, when I thought I was going to write almost nothing. So you almost have to have some um, tricks where you, you do not necessarily fool yourself, but you have to sort of make it easier for yourself. If that makes sense. Mm, yeah, I, I'm going to definitely try some of those those tips. Well, good luck. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, I'm really fascinated by your work with spirit children. Right. Um, no. Can you can you start by just explaining what what a spirit child is? Sure. A uh, spirit child uh, to me is a child. Um, that is no longer in this world, but still exists in the other world. So it may be a, di- a child dying very young, or it may be, you know, um, a child that um, was miscarried or, you know, children that like hope to come, but there was an uh, abortion maybe. And I'm not passing judgment on that, but I'm just saying that for me, all the spirit children I work with, they are in all of those categories. Um, well, you know, sometimes they are older as well. They could be like children any age. You know, often the ones I work with end up being very young. And then, again, this was something that just came. I never thought, oh, now I'm going to work with spirit children. You were asking about, like, what put you on this path? And actually, I have to acknowledge that spirit children were a huge force in that. And this was before I did shamanic training or before the lady came and said, look at your own paintings. You need to do shamanic training where spirit children would come and they would ask me to pass messages, which actually got quite difficult because I would not ask for that and the parents would not ask for that. But, you know, like I remember one very determined girl in particular would sort of come and say, I want you to talk to, like, well, my parents in this life and I want you to to tell them a few things that actually I'm fine where I am and I want you to tell them what it looks like where I'm now. And that can be very different things. You know, sometimes they're swimming in water and sometimes they're in a different place. But also she had some other things she wanted me to say, such as that, like, my mother thinks that I would have looked like her, but actually she's completely wrong. I would have looked like that with very long legs. (laughs) You know, for some reason it was important to pass that on. So again, me not having done shamanic training and just having this, you know, dumped on me. And, you know, I knew the person I had to talk to, but I didn't know her very well. So, um, you know, and it's also like, you know, you know, you know, ethically speaking, it's not right to force that kind of information on people. And today I would probably be even more cautious, but I hadn't had all the training in the ethics of shamanism yet. So I just go and, and, and talk to this woman and said, look, you know, I know you've had a stillbirth and it, it would have been a girl. And it probably couldn't sound strange, but she's kind of appearing in my dreams, like, would you like to hear more? And she said, oh, yeah, tell me more. I'd love to hear. And then I had permission. And I'd say, well, she's been appearing and she's saying this and she looks like that. And then also I got the guidance from that same girl. She said, I want you to paint me because I want to have my, my place in the family home. So I want you to do a picture of me of what it looks like, me in the other world. So, you know, being a painter, I did that to the best of my ability. And then I went and I gave the painting to the family. And like they put it on the wall and they said it was very healing because in that family, like, you know, um, the other uh, four children have always been told that there was uh, four boys, but I've always been told that, you know, there would have been a sister who didn't make it. So like everyone was aware of that, but it wasn't a focal point in the home. 
and by putting the painting on the wall, you know, they could like, you know, point at her and say, look, she's present or, you know, like she became more of a, you know, like a dead member of the family, but still present and honored. So I actually observed that that brought healing. And I thought, oh, what a powerful thing to do, that you work with spirit children and you work with art and that you'd be able to give people a gift like that. And then, you know, mm. more spirit children came or people would contact me because they had heard that I was doing that work. I did make an art video about it uh, to, to show people, you know, mm. how I worked with this. And um, so requests would come in. And then I would just observe, you know, like it is really, really healing and also... Of course, you know, it's an enormous shock when a child dies, but also like in another way, if that is now, the, you know, if we can't avoid this outcome, there are actually still ways in which like beauty and connection can be found. Because we live in a world where people don't talk about this very easily. If someone has a miscarriage, say, so that's most unfortunate and, you know, like people will sometimes almost avoid such a person because like so lost for words what are you going to say to them and that can then add to the sense of people feeling lonely or misunderstood or feeling that they can't talk about it so actually what I discovered doing this work is that you can like you know open that up and through the art you can create a safe medium both where there can be that communication with the world of spirit but also for some people, some people walking, they welcome the, to the talking point. They like putting it on their wall and saying, this is actually, you know, our son or daughter who's not with us in this world. And other people say, well, I'll put it in my bedroom because I don't want the rest of the world to talk about it. And that's completely fine either way. But I realized that there is actually a whole space there where you can do powerful work. And then once I discovered mm. that, I wanted other people to discover that. I thought maybe other people would be inspired to also start working that way. Mm. I found it very inspiring. I, I've known a couple girlfriends um, to have experienced loss in this way. And, and I think you're right. You know, there isn't necessarily a forum for people to, um, to grieve that or to come together or to talk about it or to really heal. It's, it's kind of this lost thing that happens in our society. And when I was reading a lot about your work in that regard, I was very very intrigued that there is something that people can um, experience like a deep healing that they can experience through connecting with the spirit child um, and helping kind of heal that. Cause I think it can be very tragic for many young women and, and their partners. Well, yeah, it can be. And I think since there's like, I didn't know that at the time, but I've since learned that, for instance, in uh, a discipline called family constellations work, uh, and I do it myself and I do ancestral healing work, a point is always made of identifying, like, you know, did people, you know, say, you know, if the children they have were there maybe miscarriages before or in the middle, and then actually you discover in, in, in that kind of work, that uh, children will take the position that they have. Like, for instance, if someone has a miscarriage and then a child, the child that lives will on some level know that they're child number two. And if that is not acknowledged and handled right, you end up with a kind of identity confusion or the child will behave oddly because there is something, there is kind of, you know, a law, I only discovered this much later, um, but there is a kind of law in the family field 
that demands that the honoring and acknowledgement is given. So you can't pretend that someone was never in the ancestral field, even if they were miscarried at, say, nine weeks of pregnancy. There was still a pregnancy. There was still a soul that engaged with that opportunity, meaning that, you know, in the family tree, they were, well, whatever they were, let's say child number one or let's say child number two. And that cannot be taken away from them by a child that is born subsequently. So I have, in my healing practice with children, worked with children who have literally voiced this, not even knowing exactly what their parents went through. But, you know, I have, chil I have children as young as seven say things to me like, yeah, I'm, no, I'm the oldest one in my family, but I know I'm not really the oldest one. I know there's like a brother out there and it's not right for me to say that I'm the oldest one. There is another older brother, you know, in the other world. And children know this on some level. And it's sort of by being silent about that or you know like pretending that it never happened um, we also put the living in a kind of you know awkward situation because what happened there needs this acknowledgement doesn't mean we have to tell the whole world all of the time but it means especially like we should not like hide from children that there might have been siblings who didn't make it because that's actually vital information to have i don't know if i'm making sense but that's the way that the yeah. family system works yeah so uh yeah, that makes total sense. And I find it really fascinating. So how would, have you observed in your practice um, that that child who is the first in this world, but really would have been the second? Um, what behavioral things have you noticed that maybe aren't right for that child? And then once they got the information that they're actually number two, and they do have an older brother or sister, how do you, how does the healing kind of work from well, knowing that information? It takes a kind of burden of a child. This particular, I'm thinking of a particular uh, boy right now who himself seemed to know that the child that was not born would have been uh, a brother. That information came from the child, not from me. I only knew there had been one before that who didn't make it. Is that, yeah, and he was very eloquent and he was quite young. I said about seven at the time where, you know, also, the mother took time to really explain, well, you know, actually, you were not the first pregnancy, you were the second pregnancy. So, yes, you're right. There was like a child, quite possibly a brother, you know, who, who didn't make it. And then if that is just acknowledged and talked about, so the child who is not there, so, if, you know, like knows that they're not like forgotten or obliterated, that already, that brings healing in its own right. But also what his boy literally said is, yeah, I've never felt like I was number one. And what he was really saying, but in more, childlike language is that he didn't want to shoulder the responsibilities of being you know child number one according to psychologists they have a kind of profile where they're like over responsible and they look after younger siblings or you know, whatever you know i was a firstborn mm -hmm. child i'm probably in that profile myself um <laughs> and actually this boy was you know like literally saying to his parents well forget it like i'm not your first child i'm not going to behave like your first child he seemed to be aware of <laughs> And his parents were willing to play ball. They said, well, yeah, okay, fair enough. You're really child number two and your sister is really child number three. And like the whole family rejected around that and decided to just acknowledge that in their interactions. And something really major lifted, like healing occurred. Mm. Yeah, amazing. It's amazing. So I know you do a lot of work with children. Um, can you talk a little bit about how we can involve children in 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 rituals, in ceremonies, um, how can the listeners who maybe have children kind of incorporate them with well, their I sacred ritual? Children perform ceremony very, very naturally, especially if you give them free range. Uh, 
I mean, the only thing I would say that makes a difference often when work with adults is done, if people are used to going to shamanic gatherings, then often not always depending on who the facilitator is, but people are used to that there is quite a specific way that something is done. First we do this and then we drum and then we do that. And in my experience, that doesn't work so well for children, especially young ones, because they have shorter attention spans and also they get bored if their creativity isn't engaged. So I've done many uh, ceremonies with my time travelers group, my shamanic group for children. Mm -hmm. And what I would always do is I'd let them get the information. So what do the spirits want us to do? Like ask your helping spirits. And then whatever that was, it would do, um, we would do. And then also then not to be concerned, like as adults, we sometimes want to have it really tidy and have it a certain way or whatever. And like when children do ceremony, it can get really chaotic and messy and noisy. But then, you know, but that's also that's when they're engaged from the heart and where children do really like amazingly beautiful things. I've even filmed children doing ceremony and like it's nearly broken my heart how beautiful it is. But as adults, we have to let go of our kind of tidy version of how the ceremony is like a church service. It's very respectful. Like we do not shout, we do not stomp our foot or whatever. You know, with children, you just have to break that open and you have to fly with whatever they bring. Mm. I love that. Mm. Wow. Um, I guess the next question that I have for you is... Um, if there's anything kind of on your heart that you feel um, needs to come forth or any message that, that you have that you just want to share with our listeners um, about sacred ritual or about any topic, really, if there's anything left on your heart that wants to come forward. I think we have covered a lot of ground, but I think for me it would be to repeat how healing ritual can be. We often think of ritual or ceremony, and they're slightly different but related, as like being different from healing and that being different again from teaching or attending a course and, and that being different again from other tasks we perform. Well, actually, uh, I am discovering as I grow quite old that it is possible for every act you perform in, in, in a human day to be a ritual. Like for instance, you know, if you go and do the food shop for your family, you could put an intention on that and a prayer and just ask that, you know, like all children and families in the world have the means to feed their children. And you could visualize that for a moment. When you stick the key in your front door, as I do here in London, as I come and go every day, and we have a huge homeless population here in London, even on the doorstep, you know, just sticking the key in the door, you can take a moment to just say a prayer and say, you know, um, where your act becomes a ritual act, you know, that those people who do not have homes will find homes and will find their community and safe shelter where they can sleep at night and have food to eat. And, you know, um, you know, the list goes on and on. If you go for a, a medical appointment, you could wish that everyone in the world has access to good health care. So really, I think, um, my message would be is that we can dissolve the whole idea between what is our like everyday normal life and what is ritual or ceremony because you know mm. if we really monitor our thoughts and we we do everything with that special intention everything we can do in a day 
can be enriched with, an, enriched with an intention. So it becomes a ritual act and it is a, you know, a healing or balancing dimension. It's like everything is sacred. Everything is sacred. It's like the only thing is that we human beings impose the idea that we're sometimes in sacred space and sometimes we are not. But that is ultimately a choice. We can choose to live in a different way. Mm, I think that's so beautiful. And Amelda, you have a beautiful free uh, offering for the listeners. Um, Sedna. Yes. Your work with Sedna. Can you just explain what that is? Well, Sedna is an Inuit goddess, Inuit goddess who lives on the bottom of the sea, and she's quite a um, ferocious goddess. And yes, I made an art video about her when she started appearing a lot in my dreams and in my paintings. And she is the sea keeper, so she controls the comings and goings of the animals. And uh, for the Inuit, it was like this, that if they violated taboos or like, you know, did things wrong, then Sedna, the sea keeper, the goddess on the bottom of the sea, would withhold the game. So there would be starvation and hunger. Um, and in my own dream, Sedna started appearing in a very modern context where she was telling me she was really angry about like global warming and what is, you know, and all the pollution and what that's doing to our oceans. So in my dream, she like swam all the way to London to the Houses of Parliament to sort of tell the politicians a few things about policies being made. And that seemed like such a powerful idea that I made an art video about it. So that's what mm. I've offered as the, the free offering. And I hope that people enjoy it. Oh, thank you so much. And I will link to that in the show notes um, for everybody to see. It's beautiful. Well, Imelda, it's been such an honor and a pleasure to have you with us today. I just want to thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with well, all of us. Thank you um, for having me. <laughs> I really and I feel like we could, we could talk about so many different topics. I feel like, you know, I, we just kind of skimmed the surface on, on multiple different ones, but it was really interesting. And, and thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.